0: Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the Third Angel's Message in Verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Thank you ladies. My text this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 16 and 17. Someone told me when I was young that if I could do any kind of work other than being a pastor, then by all means do it. But if God has called you to be a pastor, then there is no other kind of work that you can do. And that's what Paul is trying to say in these verses. A pastor teacher is not one of his own volition. It's like what Paul said happened to him. Necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. If I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. So when one is appointed to be a pastor and a teacher in the pulpit, his heart is burdened. You know, it... It takes more than an hour or to, to prepare a message. It takes a life. I know some pastors who can retire and go into real estate or go into farming, and God can certainly bless them and certainly let them be happy. But others who believe that God has called them to this work, for them it's impossible to go into retirement. They must preach the gospel. And I beg and I plead with the Lord, Lord, convict me. What should I share with the people? What is the message that you want the people to have? But I have never felt convicted of late to preach against luxuries, against dancing, against greed, or against any of the multitude of idolatries that are of the world If I started down that road, there would be no end of things that I could rail and rant against. But I'm constrained to proclaim something called the gospel, and it's centered in something called Christ and Him crucified. The Holy Spirit pours the love of Christ into our empty hearts, doesn't He? Our TV-loving hearts, our competitive hearts— our idle loving hearts, and if, if we are willing to let him do it, willing to behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. If we do not hinder it, the Lord will pour his love into our hearts. And it's all his movement, isn't it? It's all God's volition with our simple response, just like Abraham did of old in the Old Testament when he said, Amen. You know, that word just simply means, let it be. (laughs) So be it, Lord, what you have promised. He said that to God's fantastic promises there in Genesis chapter 12. And so, in Genesis 15, it says, the Lord accounted it to him as righteousness. In other words, the love of God filled Abraham's heart Because he said amen. And if it's true that God is love, 1 John 4 8, how in the world can we downgrade the word love if God is agape? Because that is really where the action is. So there isn't any need for us to rant against greed and against competition and against television. Yes, it's usually bad, the things that are in the media, not always. But John says that when the love of the Father comes into our hearts, that the love of the world goes out. One has to expel the other. Well, maybe someone rebukes me here. They might say to me, no, it's just not that simple. You've got to go to work. You've got to force yourself by sheer iron will not to watch sensual images not to enter into speculations. Whatever your problem is that comes between you and Christ, by iron will you have to face it and do it. But the problem is not the power of the temptation to love the world, but the problem is frustrating the grace of God that teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts as you behold Him who gave Himself for us. And so there we are, right back again, aren't we, at the foot of the cross. That's where the action is. Some wise person made a very famous remark about, well, this wise person was Ellen White. And she said something about spending a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. Especially, she said, its closing scenes. So busy as you are, don't think that watching a movie on the crucifixion is going to burn it into your soul, that that is spending a thoughtful hour, but I challenge you to give the Holy Spirit an hour each day. Wait, I say, upon the Lord, and you will detest the emptiness, the foolishness in your heart. And it will be displaced by God's love forever after. We're living in a final time of reconciliation where the Lord is bidding us, drawing us into a deeper love with Him. That's what His ministry in the Most Holy is. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is to draw us into a deeper, deeper love with Him. That's what post-1844 understanding of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is about. And it really has laid the foundation for the Seventh-day Adventist idea of health reform and how we dress and our lifestyle, how we live. It is true that Israel in ancient times, uh, some of them drank alcoholic beverages throughout the year, doesn't mean that the Lord approved of it. But on the annual day of atonement, they didn't drink one drop of alcohol. And now we're living in a very serious time, aren't we? At the end of time, the end day of reconciliation of our hearts with Him. And that's the basis for our stand as Seventh-day Adventists on alcoholic dr- and alcohol and drugs we're living in the day of atonement the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary that's what motivates it and likewise there's clear evidence that the israelites wore jewelry throughout the year although god did not ne- necessarily condone it this is obviously impresses some people who say well see there they did it in the old testament so we can wear jewelry and and adornments, you know, today. But the Israelites, on the Day of Atonement, wore no jewelry whatsoever. And they were free during all of the year to try to become millionaires throughout the year, but on that Day of Atonement, they abstained from all work. And there was a solid reason for these special sacrifices. Go to Leviticus chapter 23, And verse 27, Leviticus 23, verse 27, it says that the day of atonement was a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls. Do you see that? How does one afflict one's soul? You know, the only day in the year when the Israelites were required to fast was on that day of atonement. And they wore simple clothing and they laid aside their ornaments and on that solemn day the Israelites would leave all of their business just as they would on any seventh day Sabbath and they would gather there around the sanctuary as though they were facing the final hour of judgment and no one dressed up on that day as if they were going to a fashion show. It was a miniature sort of sandbox preview of the final last day cosmic judgment. And so how does one afflict one's soul today? Well, certainly not by going around and taking a whip and beating one's back to the point where it draws blood or wearing camel hair sweaters against our skin or denying oneself necessary nutrition or just lying around lazy all of the time, the meaning of afflict one's soul and comparing it in different passages in the Bible indicate to abase self in Isaiah 31.4, to chasten self, Daniel 10 verse 12, to humble one's soul, as in Psalm 35.13. So we can see that this Day of Atonement experience in a number of scriptures And in prophecy, Christ associates his fasting with extremely simple clothing. In Psalm 69.10, we read, I made sackcloth also my garments. And in times of special spiritual concern, God's people both fasted and they laid aside fancy clothes and wearing instead what, what is poorly translated as sackcloth, which was a coarse Material woven from goats or camels' hair, dark in color, and wearing it was a sign of special repentance and serious paying attention to the Lord. We read about Ahab, how he fasted and dressed in this way when he repented. And God called his priests or ministers to fast and wear humble clothing in times of special danger to Israel. And even the heathen knew what to do in times of special repentance for the Ninevites proclaimed a fast and the king, we are told, laid aside his gorgeous robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes when he heard the crisis preaching of Jonah. Laying aside jewelry then was specially required in the times of unusual repentance or heart-searching. For at Mount Sinai, the Lord told the Israelites in Exodus 33, verses 4 through 6, Now put off thy ornaments from thee. And the Hebrew text clearly means jewelry. So on the annual Day of Atonement, the lifestyle of God's people was appropriate. It was appropriate to the solemn faith that followed their high priest in his special work in the most holy apartment of the sanctuary. There there was not due, this wasn't due to cowardly, self-centered fear. Actually, the center, the focus was upon the high priest himself. All of the people were following with their eyes the high priest what he was doing on their behalf. Because in the high priest, the entire nation was represented. He was incorporated. And on that day alone, he would come into the very solemn presence of the Holy One of Israel to be judged as the representative of the people of Israel. And the people understood that if their great high priest were to perish, the nation would perish. And so it's easy to see why they were concerned. They laid aside all of their day-by-day interests and they concentrated on the success of His mission. We might say that they were more concerned for the plan of salvation for the whole nation than they were for their own individual salvation. And what's special about us, in light of this, what's special about us living after 1844 in this time of reconciliation of our hearts to God? We call it the Day of Atonement. What's special about it for us? Well, Christ is our high priest, and he's now cleansing the heavenly sanctuary, we believe. And just as the ancient Israelites had special duties in the Old Testament service, so God's people around the world have special duties appropriate to this end-time service as we follow Jesus. The, The correlation just seems to appeal to common sense. Just as Israel did as an example, so we are to follow our high priest, no one is so naive as to think since 1844 that God requires total abstinence from food as the ancient Israelites practiced it in, in, uh, in type in one, in one for one day. The point is that today we don't make food an idolatrous idol and live to enjoy sensuality. In other words, we practice reasonable health reform so we can keep our minds clear, so we can appreciate the special activity that is going on in our behalf as far as the universe is concerned. The Seventh-day Adventist health reform and dress reform has grown out of our unique understanding of the heavenly day of atonement. Do you see that? It is not just a standalone doctrine of legalism. It's motivated by our sense of following Jesus into the most holy. It's, and it's not a fear-gripping trip, a works program. No, as we have stated, it is a growing concern for the, the success of Jesus' mission. Well, without food, life could be, couldn't be sustained, but of all periods of world history, our Savior has singled out this uh, post-1844 time as uniquely the time to take heed to yourselves. It says in Luke 21 and verse 34, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting. You know what that is, surfeiting? Eating gourmet food or even eating much, too much good food. And then it says, and drunkenness. The use of anything that lessens our mental and our physical alertness, such as alcohol and drugs and tobacco. And then, Jesus says, and the cares of this life, and that is keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the materialism of this world. Read it. Jesus' own words, Luke 21, verse 34. And so now, as never before, is the time when we eat to live and not live to eat. The true motive in health reform is not trying to add a few more years to our life so that we can play a little more golf or have a little longer for vacation or in retirement. The true motivation for health reform is living for the honor and the glory of our Redeemer as He brings the great controversy with Satan to a triumphant victory. We want to keep in tune with His special work. We want to be alert to the special promptings of the Holy Spirit mentally, spiritually, and physically, Capable of cooperating with Him in His ministry for ourselves and for the world, don't we? That's what is uh, what fellowship with Christ means. Does ye shall do no manner of work, which was uh, the injunction on ancient Israel during the Day of Atonement, there in Luke twenty-three or Leviticus twenty-three thirty-one. Ye shall do no manner of work. Does that mean that we mustn't hold a job? during this last day of atonement, period. Well, common sense says that we have to work to make a living and support a family, but now our identity with Christ gives us something far more exciting to live for than worldly pleasure and acquiring things. After all these things do the Gentiles seek. What was permissible in normal times of past history are out of date now, in this great day of atonement. We are living in a time of emergency. And Adventist dress reform has grown out of this concern for the cooperation with the heavenly high priest in his closing work of atonement. And in a special sense, those who follow Christ by faith have their attention focused on Jesus and not On themselves, which is how the world dresses, to bring attention to themselves. Their motivation, again, is not self centered, but it is a corporate concern for the final success of Jesus' mission. It's a clearer understanding of the cross and the Savior's sacrifice. And you know something that will deliver us from our vanity an appreciation of the cross of Christ will deliver us from our vanity. And the miracle will take place. And self is crucified with Christ. And then, wonder of wonders, you know what happens? Jesus' people become beautiful. It's not what they are, but who they are. Like Abigail... The glorious good news of it all is that never in world history have we had a better opportunity to find release from the painful, from the crippling tyranny of self. God's people in these last days are to be the most beautifully free from pride, from sensuality, from the materialism of any people of all time, the most selfless human beings the world has ever been refreshed to see. And consequently, if we're free from self, we're going to be the happiest of people. And Jesus knows that. He wants us to be happy, free from self. And their lifestyle is not some kind of do-it-yourself works program of self-torture and ginning up an iron strong will. It is a sign of an inner devotion to Christ and a preoccupation with him that demonstrates that they have found something more exciting to live for than adorning themselves or indulging in sensual appetites. Incidentally, the, the Bible principles exclude something worse than wearing uh, fashionable adornments and jewelry, uh, The pious extreme of dressing in shabby, unattractive clothes also calls attention to oneself. And you know what? That's another ego trip for some people. So true dress reform requires both neatness and unobtrusiveness, it is sensible good taste. Sensible good taste. Well, once we begin spending money for vain things of any kind, there is no end to the burgeoning temptations to selfish, selfish extravagance. Um, it would be pathetic if we turn to the vain practice of proving our love for someone by, the mo- by buying them the most expensive item that they could wear. The Lord says that he considers such gold and silver as cankered, and in the judgment it will be a witness against us, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire, James 5, verse 3. The time is not far distant when we will be asked to give account for how we have spent every dollar on self rather than helping others to hear the gospel. He would glad, he would kindly save us from the acute and painful embarrassment of that day of having to give account for the dollars we've spent on ourselves. Ellen White saw a connection between dress reform and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. She she was overjoyed to connect the Day of Atonement ministry with the special 1888 message of righteousness by faith. Uh, In a series of articles in 1890 in the Review and Herald, she repeatedly connected righteousness by faith with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary And her constant concern was for for the church was a correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary, which is the foundation of our faith. And professed believers must be able, she said, to exercise the faith which is essential at this time and occupy the position which Christ designs them to fill. So that's why she said this, to dress plainly, that is, without drawing attention to ourselves, abstaining, she says, from display of jewelry and ornaments of every kind is in keeping with our faith. Our faith is unique in the world. It's following Christ into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, probably all of us have our battles uh, here with personal choices, battles with the Holy With what the Holy Spirit's call is to health reform, but basically it involves a decision to deny self in appetite. That's what health reform is. It's in line with the principle of the cross. And we pretty well know already what genuine health reform asks of us. Our need is not so much more scientific corroboration, of truths and principles that we have heard about and known for years. Um, Nutritionists and scientists are constantly filling the media with reports of new discoveries of the danger of too much fat in our diets, uh, the dangers possible in the use of overuse of dairy, the evil of too much sugar in our diets, uh, of eating of flesh foods, the danger in drinking coffee and the caffeine that is in our soft drinks to say nothing of the extra sugar that we consume thereby? Is it really more scientific charts and statistics and warnings like that 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 we need? Well, if we knew for sure that the final events and the coming of the Lord were as near today As Sister White and her colleagues in the latter part of the 19th century sensed that it was, and Ellen White believed they were in the last days in 1893, then we would sense the constraint of the love of Christ to deny self and accept from Jesus the blessedness of victory over indulgence of perverted appetite. So let's make clear what is the contribution, the actual contribution of the most precious message that God has revealed to us in connection with health reform. Ellen White says in her words, the Lord in his great mercy sent it in order to strengthen the doctrine of health reform among Seventh-day Adventists today. The message of God's love is the motivator for self-denial in appetite absolutely. And the sanctuary truth is the foundation of that. So the 1888 message restores the joy of surrender to Jesus as our Lord. The 1888 message on health reform does not torment us with greater fear and guilt, but it encourages us with that much more abounding grace that motivates us to be reconciled to our Lord, to His truth. And in that experience of reconciliation with him, we find the blessed motivation to deny self gladly and to live the health reform message because we find that self-denial is a joy in Christ. It's beyond the, quote, burdened experience. Beyond that, it's a joy in Christ. And this is accomplished by a very simple but powerful health reform truth, that is seldom comprehended among us as a people. That the self-denying death that Jesus died on his cross is not the kind of death that the popular Sunday-keeping evangelical churches assume that it is. Because the gospel is far greater good news than we are capable of seeing. Jesus died, he tasted death for every man, and that's me, and that is you. And he tasted the death, which was the second death. And that's the motivator, right there. That's it. And not until me, the sinner, and you can grasp that holy truth, can we sense the power that is in what Paul calls the truth of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. And so lukewarmness in practicing health reform is that which Jesus describes in Revelation 3, verses 14 to 21. You recognize that as the Laodicean message. And it's what makes him so sick at his stomach that he feels like throwing up. We can wear a cross around our necks and we can decorate our churches with the symbol of the cross and still appreciate nothing of what happened on Christ's cross. And so Paul begs us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If we are, as Christ implores us, we shall also be reconciled to health reform. So practical is the godliness of day atonement faith that our long-indulged, perverted appetites, they can be re-educated to enjoy a simple, healthful diet. And you won't miss your harmful favorites. To bring Paul up to date, In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, "'Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, and the flesh is where appetite rules, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me.'" And for Paul, the word flesh included our appetites for food, For he said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, is there a better word? Is there a better word for stewardship in describing our relationship to Jesus in his work of proclaiming the gospel to every creature? In Mark 16, verse 15, if you wish to look this verse up, I'm finding out I'm still out of breath (laughs) from this. Let me me have a moment. (laughs) And you look up Mark 16, verse 15. Jesus says this. Now, this is what pulsates in the heart of Jesus. This is what he desires. Go ye therefore into all of the world and do what? Preach the gospel to every creature. Now that command of Jesus requires that we support those who go, doesn't it? As well as ourselves going, we support those who go to all of the world. And that means, first of all, the giving of tithe. One-tenth of our increase that the Lord gives us The tithe is not a tax. It's not some kind of a payment from an invoice that we get from God. We give our tithes to the Lord. It's not a legalistic assessment upon us. I think a better word for, for stewardship is it is fellowship in the work of Christ's mission to the world, it's in sympathy with what he desires. Giving our tithes and our offerings to Jesus is in fellowship, in sympathy with his desire to reach the world with his gospel. Now, that command, now that's the work that Jesus loves the gospel to every creature. A steward is someone who cares for property. The word stewardship can be understood to imply a legalistic connection with the Lord Jesus and his work of proclaiming the gospel to every creature. But it's almost infinitely beyond that. You never get to really know someone until you get down working with them and digging the ditch. And stewardship, rightly understood, is getting down in the ditch, digging with the Lord Jesus and sharing his heart burden for the world. And Jesus said, go ye. And that requires that we support those who give their lives to go and preach the gospel. Now, we obeyed the call to go ye in 1972 to wherever the Lord would call to proclaim the third angel's message in verity to the people wherever the Lord would call us. And, and your going may not be to leave your home or any, go to any place overseas, but it may mean to go next door. Or it may mean teaching the everlasting gospel instead of the legalism to our children and to our youth in our own Sabbath school and in our own school. If our hearts are to be enlarged to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ and the true gospel, the Holy Spirit will take over our ministry and our teaching and everything that we do for the Lord Jesus will bear eternal fruit. And that will be happy fellowship, both for now and for eternity. At the age of uh, 38, Frances Havergill was paying a five-day visit to a family in the city of London. And all of these members of this family were unconverted. And they were unhappy people. And so she prayed as she made this visit that she could help them. To see Jesus. And so when it came time for her to leave, she rejoiced that the Lord had answered her prayer. And in her gratitude, she wrote a poem, Take My Life and Let It Be, Consecrated Lord to Thee. It's hymn number 330 in our songbook. And four years later, she reread the poem, and she was struck By the lines that she had written there, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And she wrote a friend that this means to ship off my ornaments to the church missionary house, including a jewel cabinet that was really fit for a countess. Now, Francis Havergill never knew about the heavenly day of atonement but the love of Christ motivated her to give up her jewelry for mission work. Can we do no less today? Can we who know the truth do less? Isaac Watts wrote, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. You have in your bulletin today a thanksgiving for Jesus in this little orange sheet. We believe that one of the missionary outreaches that our Hayward 7th Adventist Church has is our Bayside Christian School. And giving to Jesus means giving to the teaching ministry and the education of our children. You know what Christian Adventist education is all about? Captivating the hearts of our children with the cross of Christ and His love. And if children can be kept away from the drug environment of the school systems and the sexual temptations of our school systems and the cheating systems in our school systems. I know that it can happen in our own Christian school, but the chances are much less that they can find their hearts being captivated by the cross at Bayside. And to me, that's what real true education would be all about. But learning becomes much more of a challenge when you have water coming in your room. And so this offering is for a roof on the school, a thanksgiving offering for Jesus. And if the Lord so impresses you to give a mite or a talent, you can indicate that. And if you choose to put your name or otherwise, you can on this. But through the course of November, you can give to the Bayside roof. And at the conclusion, the deacons will be there to receive your orange sheet there Let's encourage Jesus, shall we? And give him an offering that he deserves because he died for you and for me. Hymn number 330. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.